0: I speak to you in the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We are continuing our Eastertide series, Reading Romans Backwards. But before we jump into today's section, chapters 9 through 11, a brief recap of where we've already been is in order. And I should also note that I encourage you to read and to reread these passages before and after each of our Sunday services. This way, you're able to bring your questions with you, and afterward, hopefully, be able to reread the text in a new light. And if the questions remain, please don't hesitate to ask me, and I will do my best to offer a response. The best way we can learn is by doing it together. It is important for us to remember that the context in which Romans was written, especially as we move into chapters 11 to 1 of the letter, The first 11 chapters of Romans only make sense in what happens or in light of what is being read in chapters 12 through 16. And chapters 12 through 16 are the chapters that we focused on in the past three Sundays. So now the brief recap Romans is an inherently practical and pastoral letter. Romans is not a work of academic theology for specialists. Rather, it is about everyday lived theology, about putting our faith into action. You see, St. Paul is concerned with how Christians live together and how they share their faith. Paul wants to ensure that the church continually grows in the image and likeness of Jesus. This is especially important amidst diverse church communities composed of different people from different ethnic and socioeconomic backgrounds. Paul reminds the Church that our identity is first and foremost established in Jesus Christ. No matter our cultural background or other markers of our identity, we are sisters and brothers in Christ before we are anything else. We receive our new identity in Christ through the waters of baptism. Then we are shaped by the story of God's people and God's family, And then we carry this gospel story into the world, sharing it with others and inviting them to join us in God's family. Deep abiding love for God and deep abiding love for one another is the power that drives the church, held all together through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now the church in Rome was a small one at that time, about 100 to 150 members, but it's very passionate about following Jesus. However, there is one problem, and it's a big one. The Church is divided essentially into two groups. These groups, the strong and the weak, do not get along, and they openly oppose each other at every turn. Roman Christians, that is, the strong, use their social status and their wealth on the one hand, and Jewish Christians, the weak, use their moral superiority on the other, each trying to gain the upper hand over the other. A house divided simply cannot stand, especially in a cultural context that is increasingly hostile to both Jews and Christians alike. It is, all this, it is at this point where Paul's image of siblingship comes to the forefront again. Paul notes that God's family began with the people of Israel, The forefathers of the faith, the original covenant, and the Torah belong to them. They are given by God to this particular people. However, Paul explains because of Jesus Christ, God's family is now extended to include Gentiles. Indeed, this was God's plan from the very beginning. Because we are a people who are shaped by stories, it is important for the Gentile Christians to understand the story of which they are now a part. They can't simply disregard history as being unimportant. In other words, the strong cannot simply disregard the traditions of the weak as though they are unimportant and of no matter. While the observance of Torah is not a requirement for Gentile Christians, ignorance of Torah is not possible because it is at the very heart of the story of God's family, a family where Jew and Gentile are reconciled through love, and are made sisters and brothers. Now, this reconciliation is not enforced by human hands. It is only made possible through Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfills the story of Israel. He reveals what the story of God's people is truly all about. He reconfigures, you could say, the entire story, a story that comes to a climax with Jesus' own crucifixion and resurrection. Now, none of this means that the story of Israel is unimportant. This is the last thing that Paul wants anyone to think. The Church maintains that the rejection of the Old Testament is heresy. In other words, rejecting the Old Testament is not and cannot be part of Christian teaching. Paul is making the exact same point here. Throughout chapters 9 through 11, Paul offers an abundance of quotations and references to the Old Testament, in order to make his point, Paul wants us to see that the main overarching perspective of the entire Old Testament is on one thing, on God's covenant faithfulness, that God does not and God will not give up on God's family, though God's family may give up on him, though individuals may fail in their following of God's covenant You see, God's faithfulness is made clear time and again throughout the Old Testament, and it becomes most clearly revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Paul wants us to see how the story of God's relationship with Israel prepares for the arrival of Jesus, the only one through whom all people are invited to join God's family. Paul wants to make himself absolutely clear. So he hammers away on this point over and over and over again. And when we remember that this letter would have been read, or more accurately, performed in front of the Church of Rome, Paul's questioning in chapters 9 through 11 is almost relentless. Over and over and over again, he's posing question after question. You see, at this point in the letter... Paul is now specifically addressing the weak. He asks them 21 rhetorical questions in the span of these three chapters. Why? In order to emphasize God's covenant faithfulness. In order to emphasize the unity between the story of Israel and the story of Jesus. Paul concludes that God remains faithful to his covenant to Abraham and that God will work all things according to God's plan. What this means is that God is not working against Israel, but rather God is working through Israel, even when Israel is being unfaithful, unbelieving, and failed to keep the covenant. God's plan, according to Paul, is and always was to include Gentiles in God's family, and Paul says God remains completely faithful and consistent in doing so. So to the weak, Paul announces that their story is the means by which God is extending his mercy and his love to Gentiles. Israel's election, in other words, the fact that God chose Israel to be part of his family, means that they are, through their genealogy, part of the Messiah's family. Their family story is the story of this promised Messiah. Now this is something to celebrate because it means that the Gentiles are now part of their family as well. Their privileged identity as God's chosen people is something to be shared. Because of Jesus, they now have new sisters and brothers. This is not something to grumble about. You will recall the older brother's response in the story of the prodigal son when his brother came back. Rather, this is something to celebrate. The weak are not disowned or displaced by the strong. The strong pose no threat to them. They are, su- they are neither superior or inferior to them. Rather, they are siblings and have an equal claim on God's love. This love, Paul reminds the weak, cannot be earned. Following Torah does not gain them status or privilege. Their identity as God's children is simply because of one thing, God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness alone God's faithfulness is made manifest in and through Jesus Christ. The prerogative is God's. It does not belong to anyone, even Israel. God's grace is just that. It's God's. And it is grace because it comes from God alone. This is what leads Paul to read Moses and all the Torah in light of Jesus Christ. The works of the law can can, and have only ever been perfectly followed by one person, Jesus. And because Jesus did this perfectly, he alone extends the new covenant of grace and mercy to all people, that is to say, to Jews and to Gentiles alike. Obedience to this new covenant is performed simply by an act, an act called faith. Faith is confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and believing that God raised him from the dead. This is the good news to that all those who belong to God's family are called to proclaim and share. You see, we are called by God for this very purpose. God chose us to be the ones who share God's story. Our job, our vocation, is to share this good news and invite people to faith in Jesus, to invite people to join God's family. Now some may have asked Paul, Does this new covenant mean that God is being unfaithful to the old covenant with Israel? Has God rejected Israel and replaced them? The short answer, said Paul, is absolutely not. Again, Paul goes to great effort to argue that the prerogative belongs to God alone. God does not elect, choose, or call people on the basis of their status, their merit, or their privilege. God rather acts to redeem out of his singular pleasure and benevolence. In other words, the priority is only on God. The priority is on God and God alone, on his acts, on his grace. Grace, you see, gets rid of the honor codes that we have. Grace cuts through the social hierarchies that we have created. Grace cuts through the rhetoric of both privilege and victimhood and instead offers superabundant love and mercy to all who want to receive it through faith. My standing, with Nod is, my standing with God is not on the basis of what I do, that I am a good and decent person and somehow deserving of God's love. My standing with God is simply because of God's grace. Because of this, or because of Jesus, This grace extends to all who desire to receive it. This is a surprising move to those who keep Torah, but it is God's prerogative to do so, says Paul, and if we've been paying attention, we'll see that it was God's plan all along. And what about the strong? To the strong, Paul announces that they too are now part of how God is enacting his plan to bring all people into God's family. But, Paul continues, this does not mean that Jewish fo- uh, Gentile followers of Jesus are now superior to Jewish followers of Jesus, that they are now somehow supplanted their, their Jewish forebears, that they've progressed beyond that. No, not at all. Rather, Paul says, Gentile Christians must remain thankful for their Jewish heritage. They are part of the family now. It's their family tree. It's their family story. They cannot neglect these things. However, this new identity in God's family is neither something to take for granted or something to boast about as though it were a human achievement. The strong are falling into the same trap, you could say. No, says Paul, the strong must always remember that the prerogative is always God's. If God can prune the Israelite portion of the family tree, the portion that is not bearing good fruit, then God can equally prune the Gentile portion of the family tree as well, for God shows no partiality. Yes, it is a privilege to be part of God's family, to be called into fellowship with the church. However, God's purpose in doing so is not simply for the sake of those who are called. It is also for the sake of others. God wants all people to be reconciled to him. But how can this be if no one goes to tell others the good news? We want the church to grow. Good, says God, so do I. But it's not going to happen if you sit around congratulating yourselves for being Christians. The growth only happens when we invite others to be part of God's family. So overall, in chapters 9 through 11, Paul is cautioning both the weak and the strong not to take their role in God's plan for granted, or to assume that they have God's plan all figured out. The prerogative is God's alone. Too often, preaching on Romans is determined on focusing on who is in and who is out, that is, between who is chosen and who is rejected by God. This completely misses the point. Individual salvation is simply not in Paul's view. Rather, Paul is emphasizing how God continues to act through communities, through particular people, specifically one community, first through Israel and now as well through the church. We as a church are called to participate in God's plan of redemption and reconciliation. This is not something that we can do alone. This is a group endeavor, and one that requires us all to be on the same page when it comes to what matters most, when it comes to understanding who we are as a church, beloved offspring of God, and siblings of Jesus and of one another. My sisters and brothers in Christ, for that is what we are, let us always marvel at God's plans and actions, which are completely like our ways, this is indeed good news because, as much as we like to think that we have God all figured out, as much as we automatically think, or as much as we think that we automatically deserve God's love, as much as we assume that we think we can win God over with our goodness, we are in fact radically broken people who need God's grace and mercy above and before anything else. This grace comes to us in profound and unexpected ways, through Jesus Christ, God made flesh. It comes to us through the ancient words of sacred scripture. Grace comes to us through water and oil, through bread and wine. So let us receive these gifts with faith and thanksgiving, and let us go into the world, proclaiming the radical love and grace of God to all people, In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.